And as you're being seated, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We will be finishing Luke 24 today, but we will not be finished with Luke today. Because I was unable to preach the uh, Magnificat that Mary gave after the announcement of Jesus' birth. We only had four weeks of Advent, and that would have required a fifth. So, uh, so in the Lord's providence, we, that, will, that will work out to be next Sunday, Mother's Day. And we will get to see uh, the mother of Jesus exalt over her son next week. And that we will close with the Gospel of Luke. The the wonders of God's providence and expository preaching. So I will begin in Luke chapter 24. We'll start in verse 36. Again, listen carefully because this is the word of the Lord to you today. As they, this is the disciples, were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray to the Lord and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, this final passage from Luke. I pray that we would be able to absorb all of the richness that is here and may it make a difference in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is such a wonderful passage of scripture. And there are so many little things that if you weren't reading slowly, you might pass right over them. And it seems like Luke is running out of space as he gets to the end of his parchment and is just giving us all of this truth right here at the end. There's just so much here to see and a wonderful account of the blessings that await us, the difference that Jesus makes in our lives that we'll see here. 
And of course, as I have titled this sermon, the question that remains after we finish this chapter is, now what? We have been given 24 chapters of who Jesus is and what discipleship requires. We began at the very beginning seeing that Jesus was both God and man, a tremendous mystery that we're not able to fully wrap our heads around, that he can be 100% God, fully man, and, or fully, fully God and fully man together. We saw that Jesus was a teacher like no one else, that he could heal like no one else, and that he commanded the world of the Spirit and the creation like no one else. And then we saw the tremendous call of discipleship, and that this required taking up your cross daily and following after Jesus, remembering the poor, but yet staying faithful to God's gospel and proclaiming of that, having the gospel in both word and deed, and seeing how Jesus from all this time has been about the business of his father, every step taking him ultimately to the cross. That this not be just the direction of Luke, but the direction of all of redemptive history in the Old Testament has been leading here to this moment. So what do we do? How do we react from these sorts of statements? What should we expect now that this has happened? And that's what we're going to see today. So if you'll look into your outline that you'll see tucked into your bulletin on the back of the prayer guide, we have two points that we're going to look at today. The first is that we are called to proclaim a comprehensive gospel in Jesus' name. Called to proclaim a comprehensive gospel in Jesus' name. And secondly, we need the Holy Spirit to do it. We're going to be taking a look at each of these points. So let's start in at the gospel that we are to proclaim. So first, we see the disciples. They're gathered around the table. As other gospel witnesses tell us, they are gathered around in a room that is locked tightly. You can imagine there is a fair amount of fear that the disciples are experiencing. Their Lord and Master that they have been following for the last three years has just been killed by the religious and political leaders of the time. You can imagine if that's how they treat the Lord, how are they going to treat his servants? So you could imagine cautiously heading up into a room and locking themselves in. You can see this is an important detail because now in verse 36, it says Jesus himself stood among them. This isn't Jesus hiding under a table and popping out. This is Jesus appearing in a locked room, showing once again the the incredible power over the physical and spiritual world that Jesus has. And why it would be necessary that the first words Jesus would say to them is peace to you, because this is a rather startling thing. Even though they have been talking about resurrection all this time, that Jesus has already appeared to two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're here with the disciples telling them about being seen, and they've just been informing them how Jesus has appeared to Simon Peter, but it's really one thing to say something, and then it's another thing to experience it. And that's exactly what they see here. They are startled and think that he is a spirit. Not the first time that they've made this mistake. When Jesus has been walking out on the water, they assumed the same. But it's worth dwelling on the fact that the very first words that Jesus speaks to them after the resurrection is peace to you. Because that is exactly what Jesus brings. Jesus has died on the cross. This is a point that commentators have brought out. He has died on the cross and has brought peace 
between God and man. That is the greatest blessing that we could have ever hoped for, really beyond any sort of hope that we could have. We don't deserve this gospel. We deserve the opposite for the sins that we've committed. But yet here Jesus comes and brings them peace. That's what he does here. And of course, these disciples are still frightened, so he begins to explain to them why they shouldn't be. He being able to look into their hearts as he always has been able to and sees that they're troubled and addresses their particular concerns that they're seeing a ghost, a non-physical presence that stands among them. And he says, no, 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 look, it's me. There's my hands and my feet. I have hands and feet with bones on the inside that they could feel and touch. So what he has to hear when he says, touch me and see, it means to handle, to move and see that this is a physical being. And he continues to go on how now the disciples have moved from fear and startling to disbelief from joy. This doesn't mean that they are still doubting and skeptical of what Jesus is saying. It would be just another way of saying, I can't believe it. It was like when we just baptized our daughter this morning, and it reminds me of the time when I found out that, she was, that we, were, we were expecting her. I was out on the lawnmower during the definitive time of testing, and I came in a few hours later and was marching around, parading about how, what a good job I had done out in the lawn. That's the weakness of your preacher. And my wife had a plate of four cookies that she had decorated. And it said, Mom, Dad, Granger, and Baby. And it took me a moment to register that there were, in fact, four cookies on there and what that meant. But when I did, it was a disbelief for joy. That we were once again expecting another blessing from the Lord. And for anyone that has stood around a positive pregnancy test knows what that feels like. And to see this joy that they've had. And this is what they're feeling here. And then he goes on in verse 42. Some versions have that he ate a a broiled piece of fish and some honey that he took and ate it before them. Now, if you're wondering why it seems like Luke seems to be belaboring this point that Jesus is physically raised, it does show that this must be really important. Luke is running out of space. Parchment is only so long, but he's spending almost half of this saying that Jesus has physically risen from the dead. Couldn't we just be satisfied with Jesus being spiritually raised from the dead? Does it have to be physical? And the answer is absolutely. Jesus is conquering death everywhere that we can find it. Spiritually and physically. He conquers death completely and gives us the hope of resurrection. He's been talking about resurrection his whole ministry. That there would be a renewal of the body as well. This is the comprehensiveness of the gospel. And brings a realness to what the gospel is. This is not a moral philosophy. This is not a psychological trick to get you through the week or something that is only considered for your soul and your body like, well, that doesn't really matter. No, it does. God cares about your body. God cares about his physical creation. And for those of you that are suffering in your body, one day it will be raised like Christ's. That's the hope that you can have. This creation that we look around us that is 
suffering with death and decay and wearing out, one day that will cease. And it begins here, the first fruits of the resurrection. We see Paul talking about this in Romans chapter 8. You'll turn there real quickly. How Paul is able to have such a hope in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul sees this as very important. The comprehensive promise of the gospel. What you believe about Jesus is going to determine what happens to your arms and legs. It has a difference as to what happens to your ribcage. It's a very physical thing. It's a very comprehensive speaking to the entirety of who you are. The resurrection of Jesus. It's not a spirit. We are not satisfied with just one part of redemption. Christ is going to redeem it all. That's what makes him different from everyone else. People who have espoused moral philosophies like Buddhism or Mohammedism, Islam, those guys couldn't conquer death. They died and they stayed dead. Their followers couldn't excuse their lack of return by saying, well, it was just a spiritual thing. It was all a mental game that he wanted to give to us. No. Jesus is risen. He is alive right now and is ministering to us even as we're here. Again, as the passage continues, that this has always been the plan. This wasn't a happy accident. Or that somehow Christ passed out on the cross and was able to miraculously make this comeback where he was able to happen to fulfill all of these prophecies of the Old Testament by passing out and returning. As ridiculous as all that sounds, that was a theory for a while. But the scriptures are quite plain. Look what it says in verse 44. Jesus is saying to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Once again, seeing the sovereignty of God in opening people's minds and hearts, just like we saw last week when he was uh, uh, closing and opening the eyes of the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Here he is opening up the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. But notice, he's just pointing them back to the scriptures. Jesus is not opening up their minds and giving them a secret bit of knowledge that nobody else was able to obtain. He's pointing them to the scriptures so that they could understand it. This is what we have. We don't need other things. We need the scriptures because that's what he gives to us opening up their minds to understand the scriptures and how all of them have pointed 
to Christ. Again, when he uses the terms, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the Old Testament was divided up into these three sections. So they would have understood he was talking about the whole of the scriptures. The law of Moses being the Pentateuch, the first five books. The prophets being, of course, the prophets. And the Psalms, or the writings, including not just the Psalms, but the Proverbs and on. All of these things are pointing and find their fulfillment in Christ. That's what this has all been about It's not a happy accident that Christ was raised. This was the definite plan of God to bring about salvation and redemption. And then he goes on for what further prophecy has to say. It's not just the rising of Christ from the dead, but it's the propagating of that gospel to the rest of the world. Look what it says in, I'll start again in verse 46. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Have you ever wanted to fulfill a prophecy? Share the gospel. Do you remember what we read in our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 36? That one day the nations would know that I am the Lord? Right here. This is where it started. And this is where it continues. Us who are here, the people that we are around are not accidents. The places where we work and play and live, don't waste your geography, as one preacher said. But use this to proclaim the gospel, a comprehensive gospel. Notice that he lists out that it is repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. We can't leave any of that out. These days, we want to try to preach a gospel that does not require you leaving your sins behind. We've left repentance out of the gospel. This is not the way that we are saved, that we can gumption up enough energy to turn away from our sins. But if we're going to turn and trust in Christ, we're going to turn to him. That implies we're turning away from something and leaving those sins behind. I was listening to a podcast recently from Rosaria Butterfield. She was speaking about our current cultural moment where we would want to try to blend in a different sexual identity with our Christianity and trying to say this is faithfulness. And she put it this way. It says, we need to look at our sin through the sights of an instrument of execution rather than a selfie camera. Not identifying ourselves and saying, it's me and this sin. No, we look at our sin through the scope of a sniper rifle and do everything we can to get rid of that in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we'll discuss in just a moment. We need to preach a gospel of repentance. It's not kind to tell people that to live with their sin but to put those things to death will we be perfect no of course not will we ever get to a point where we never struggle with sin again in this life no but that is the christian life is one of repentance one of seeing sin and in the power of the holy spirit turning away from it and coming back to christ and then for those that have been burdened perhaps like luther you see how much sin you have in your life. 
If the Lord has given you the blessing of being able to see how much you need him. We're also reminded of the forgiveness of sins. That's something we're too used to. Have you ever done something wrong against somebody and you know that you are in their debt? And you know that you need their forgiveness, but you know it's going to be a long time before you get access to that. That's a really hard place to be in human relations. It taints everything that's around there. And we don't give enough time to, and, and thought that that was our state before God. The one who owns everything about you, fills your lungs with air and forms your heart and keeps it beating. That we had sinned against him. When you're a kid and you have a spat with, a spat with your siblings, you can go to your parent. And you can make the other child say, I'm sorry, whether they mean it or not. Who are you going to go to to have God forgive you? There's no one higher to appeal to. There's no one else you get to say, God, you have to forgive me. No, he doesn't. And it would be perfectly just and righteous to not do so. God owes us nothing. But instead, he sends his son at great cost to himself to provide the way for forgiveness. So now we can appeal to Christ. Because Christ has now lived the perfect life. And he gives us his record. And now we can hold up Jesus' record to God and say, I'm forgiven. You can appeal directly to God for your forgiveness. And he will forgive you. Not because he's forced to. Even better, because he wants to. Because of the sacrifice of his son. We need to tell that to people especially to people that we personally don't think deserve that. We all have in our minds a person that is beyond redemption and shouldn't get the gospel. People who have been in jailed for abuses of children. We assume those people are out. Gospels for them too. Christ can forgive them because he's forgiven me. I don't deserve it any more than he does. That's what we proclaim. Turning from those awful things that have not only broken your relationship between you and God, but are also slowly destroying you as well. To grant you freedom from those things and an entrance into forgiveness in the name of Christ. There is no other name whereby you can be saved. You don't get to mix and match other elements of other religions and say, well, I can find peace over here and I'll get this from over there. It's only Christ and Christ alone. In his name do we find salvation. By the way, not in your name either. That you are not saved by your own performance and your ability to get your life together. It's in Christ's name. It's in Christ that we hope, not in us. This is the name that we proclaim to all the world. Just as it said in Ezekiel 36. Here's the same command here in Luke 24. To go into all the world for Christ's name's sake, for his reputation's sake, 
to go out into the world. And for the disciples, it began right where they were. It began in Jerusalem. To go out and to take the gospel from, from home to next door to the ends of the earth. Now you would think, especially as he gets to verse 48, and says, you are witnesses to these things. You have witnessed the culmination of redemptive history. 3,000 years in the making. Here you are. And you think, okay, let's go. You're ready to jump in the missions van and you've got your backpack and you're ready to head out. But Jesus says, wait. I can almost hear the brakes. What do you mean, wait? What else do we need? I'll tell you what we need. Our second point, the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to get to in verse 49. I remember... In seminary classes, I had a Baptist professor looking at, the, looking at us Presbyterians, and he had said, you all have a wonderful doctrinal statement on the Holy Spirit. I hope one day that you'll meet him. So, we're known for not being very active. But that's not what the Holy Spirit entails. It's not activity or movement, but it is power. That's how Christ conceives of him. Notice I say him, not it. It's not a force. It's not an impersonal ghost floating around. But this is God himself. Verse 49. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. Just a little side note. There's the Trinity. All here in one verse. God the Son saying that God the Father has promised the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that that is the Holy Spirit when we look into Acts chapter 1 and see the continuation of Luke's writings that this is indeed the Holy Spirit. And indeed, Acts would probably more appropriately be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit as we see him working and building his church. But that's another sermon series entirely. Let's go back to the Holy Spirit for a second. Why do we need this Holy Spirit? What does he do? Well, we can look uh, very briefly, just a couple of different passages that we'd like to look at. You can jot these down. Uh, you can refer to them and study them a little bit more later. In John chapter 14, verse 26, it tells us that the Holy Spirit will come and teach to us the Scriptures. Don't you think that's important? That we are looking at the words of God and it becomes apparent as to how this applies to our life. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it says in Corinthians that the natural man does not understand the things of God, but because they are spiritually discerned. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit, uh, that, uh, that an atheist reading the Bible and says Jesus wept, that he is unable to say Jesus cried? Like, no, he can understand the, what the scriptures are saying, but he can't see how that changes his life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when you sit down and you read your Bible... Ask for the Holy Spirit's help. Help. Ask him to help you see how this applies to you in your life right now. It's just one thing that the Holy Spirit does. So he helps us to understand what God wants us to do. As if that wasn't enough, let's see what else he does. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, we all know of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the one who produces righteousness within us. Tells us where righteousness comes from. Not from you turning over a new leaf. You don't have the power to remake your heart. 
But the Holy Spirit does. You want to be free from sin? You want to produce fruit of righteousness? There's the Holy Spirit. That's him working for you. What about helping us to pray? Romans 8, 26 and 27. We don't know how to pray as we ought. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. He takes our prayers, sometimes misguided as they are, and makes them into prayers that we should have prayed. When we sit down and pray for our team to win the Super Bowl, the Lord, Holy Spirit can change this into a prayer of, Lord, help me have my priorities correct. And to pray for the nations. He helps us to pray because we don't know what to do. And in John 16, verses 7 and 8, that he convicts the world of sin. When you feel conviction in your heart, that sense of I have done something wrong and I need to go to Jesus to get it taken care of, that's the Holy Spirit. So you can see the Holy Spirit is the one who helps you understand what the Bible says. Helps you to pray, to be able to ask for power, to do what the Bible says. He produces that power in you to convict you of sin and to deliver you fruits of righteousness. Well, that's pretty important, isn't it? There is a lot that the Holy Spirit is doing. And all those things are remarkable. All of that is a miracle. Because it's changing the heart of somebody. Medical interventions can do a lot to heal the body. But only Christ can heal a soul. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. So what does it mean to rely on the Holy Spirit then? How do we do that? We often throw around these things of don't do this in your own strength. It's like, what other other arm am I supposed to use? What does this mean? Don't do this in my own strength. We're going to tell you what it means to not do this in your own strength. It means to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help daily. Prayer is a wonderful admission that you do not know what to do and that you do not know how to run your own life. It's prayer. And every time when we are prayerless, it's an immense act of pride. Because it tells God, I already know what to do. Thank you. I've got this. To rely on the Holy Spirit is to come to him in prayer. A posture of neediness. Doesn't play well in American culture. But it is the truth. We need him. Relying on the Holy Spirit also entails going into God's word and seeing where wisdom is. We like to find lots of alternative sources to try to find what we need for life, but it's not going to be found on the internet. It's not going to be found on Facebook. Heavens, it won't be found on cable news. But it will be found here. It's been said that if you were to be in a locked, windowless basement and given the word of God, you would know more about the world than anybody else. So the wisdom is here. That's what it means to rely on the Spirit. You've got to find out what, is, what the Spirit is trying to tell you. It's in words, written down for you. Don't have to worry about whether or not you misheard him. It's written down for you. To go and see what God has to tell you. And praying to him that you would help to, be under, to, 
to, for the Spirit to help you understand and then live those things. That's what it means to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's an act of surrendering your own competencies, your own trust in yourself, and looking to God for everything that you need. That's what that means. And finally, as we look at this last section, the ascension, as this is described in our Apostles' Creed that we mentioned, that he ascended up into heaven and onto the right hand of God the Father, here is Christ's exaltation. The promise from Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man would be lifted up to a throne where he would rule over all nations. Here it is. Jesus climbing onto his throne. The exaltation of Christ. Ascending up into heaven. And he ascends up with his body. They see him go. Just one commentator points out that says that that means that we're able to go. Humanity is able to go to heaven. Christ keeps his body. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As one commentator had pointed out, that the incarnation of Christ taking on a human nature was a permanent change. A long-term, eternal condescension for us. He still has the marks of the nails in his hand. He still bears those marks of his suffering and sacrifice. This is what Jesus has done for you. And one day he will return. That's why in verse 52, you'd almost miss it. Verse 52, and they worshiped him. This is the first time in Luke Jesus has been worshiped. We finally recognize that Jesus is God. As in fact, the last time this word showed up was back in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was quoting to the devil that the Lord God and him only shall you worship. And here at the end of Luke, they're worshiping God. Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord in heaven. And then in verse 53... Or verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As another scholar had pointed out, the gospel of Luke began in the temple and now it ends in the temple. The announcement that John the Baptist would be born was made in the temple and now the celebration that Christ has ascended to his throne is made in the temple. Gospel of Luke has come full circle. So now what? So now for us, we continue to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. That mandate is still there. Or rather, that privilege is still there. You are witnesses to these things. Maybe you haven't seen Christ bodily. But you've seen him here in his word. There is a special blessing that says in John for those that have believed and not seen. So go, take this gospel to the world. Preach this gospel to yourself every day as you see its continual need for that you have for it in your lives. Take this with hope, knowing that the Holy Spirit is with you, dwells inside of you, and is changing you every day. And you will fulfill 
prophecy that has been proclaimed since Genesis chapter 3. And one day, we'll see all of this perfectly fulfilled when we, like Christ, are resurrected bodily and go to our home in heaven forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this amazing promise that you've given to us. This blessing that bubbles out to us like a fountain. I pray that we would be moved by these things. That we would not look to these things as just stuff to know, but truths to believe. I pray that this would make a difference in all of our lives. That we would not look to the resurrection as just something that will benefit us later, but something that changes how we look at our lives now. I pray that we would look to your Holy Spirit, that we would trust and rely on him every day. I pray this is the case for everyone who is here and listening. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.